agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Kevin Munger, an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State. Today, Kevin and I are going to be talking about his book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. You know, I want to start by saying in the book for listeners, you examine these main generational co- cohorts that have uh, had significant influence on American politics and American culture. And, and I wanted to start out by giving listeners kind of a frame of reference here in case they needed it. Um, there are three big cohorts, uh, the greatest generation. They came to age around World War II. Then there were the baby boomers, and that's the largest of these groups who kind of came of age in the 60s and made that generation what it was, for better or worse. And then the millennials who started to reach adulthood at the end of the 20th century. And in between those three larger cohorts, we have two smaller groups, the silent generation, and they come in between the greatest generation and the boomers, and Gen X, which comes between the boomers and the millennials. Now. To start with, I should point out what's kind of a big question is that, you know, some people aren't even necessarily convinced that generational cohorts matter all that much. And they're just these made up sort of things. For instance, they, they might argue that someone born in 1946 at the beginning of the baby boom generation, they're probably not going to have much in common with someone born like 18 years later at the end. But both of them are considered boomers. And so, you know, given that you've written a book about generational cohorts, you obviously believe that they matter. And so I was hoping we could start with that. If you could talk a little bit about how and why you think they matter, as well as whether or not you think those points about that are raised by, I guess I'll call them cohort doubters uh, or deniers, uh, are they valid at all? Right. Yeah. So, well, let's first talk about the boomers as a unique generation in the sense of the only one officially designated as such by the census. So uh, they sort of kick off this um, thinking about generations in terms of the official uh, measures that we use to sort of define our, our population. But to your point, I definitely don't think that the generational boundaries as they are defined are the right one. I think they are overall a bit too long. So looking at the data, if I were to define a more coherent first year range to define the sort of most powerful generation, we'll get to in a second, it would probably be the people born between about 1940 and about 1955. So in a lot of the measures that appear um, when I'm analyzing a variety of different uh, components of American society, this generation really is distinctive. Now that said, these labels have are very popular. People use them a lot to identify themselves, talk about trends. And so the labels are in fact made up, but uh, everything is made up. <laughs> Humans made up everything. So uh, that doesn't mean it has not come to define our conception 
of the world and how we divide up different generations. So the fact that people, as I show in, in the survey in the book, tend to think of themselves, identify as boomers or millennials, um, it matters, even if these labels are maybe not where I would have drawn the boundaries exactly. And we see the people who are close to the border identify with their generation last. They don't really seem to be in the main thrust of things. But still, the fact that people use these labels means that they are real. And, and, and let's talk about that most powerful generation. Uh, in the book, you write, the baby boomer generation is more powerful today than any previous generation at this point in their life cycle. And of course, power is one of those terms, right? It's, it's pretty, can be a pretty squishy thing. And so we're both social scientists. I thought you could maybe talk a little bit about what you mean, how you, how you would measure power in that sense. And, and by that measure or measures, exactly how powerful boomers have become or are currently in, in American politics and American society. So I, I think that the, the idea of power, uh, that, that claim you quote, is you know, not really provable or disprovable. There are lots of different measures that we can use. And, and so my claim is that these measures are all pointing in the same direction and that they are sort of multiplicative of each other. So First and foremost is simply that there are a lot of baby boomers. So the fact that there are more of them gives them more power on all of these other dimensions. In terms of political power, um, this means that they're able to cast more votes. Um, but also in particular, when it comes to a lot of the more high engagements, political activities like voting in primaries or uh, participating with official partisan organizations, uh, and in particularly donating to candidates, the boomers today uh, are, are punching above even their baseline rate on all of those dimensions. Uh, I sort of want to call out in particular this campaign finance dimension. So um, when I look at the top 100 donors, there are more people over 85 than under 40 in that list. And so American politics is pretty much an outlier in the world in terms of how we deal with campaign finance. And, you know, people tend to get wealthier throughout the life cycle. And so this compounds the power of older generations, which, given that there are a lot of them, compounds boomer power. And then the economic dimension is additionally distinctive. Um, the boomers were born into a period of unprecedented economic stability and growth. So they were able to begin the process of accumulating wealth throughout the life cycle early on to get settled into careers, buy houses, et cetera. Um, and, and so today they actually have a disproportionate amount of the overall wealth in, the, in our society. And the final dimension is, sorry, just the, 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 the politicians. So there's, there's way more baby boomers in the House, in the Senate, and in the presidency than uh, any other generation has has held. And so you mentioned one thing about that. Well, you talk about their punching above their weight. And, and one thing you suggested was that stability that they were born into, which allowed them to accumulate, I guess, more economic power, which is obviously can be translated into political power and cultural power as well. Uh, is there anything other than that that you that you would maybe point out that would be 
distinctive uh, about the boomers that would somehow allow them to be so incredibly influential, even more so than what their massive numbers would would suggest, say, compared to, I mean, the, the greatest generation was, was, was not small, right, certainly. And so what, what do you think? So on the, you know, to kind of expand on this point about the politicians, so the, the, the boomers were also very early on to begin gaining power within our institutions. And so a lot of the institutions which currently govern American politics, including both political parties, but also law, the institution of law schools and judges, et cetera, doctors, and then large corporations, they were all expanding at the time when boomers were young. And so a lot of boomers were able to get on the path of upward mobility in terms of power within those institutions. And so they are all now disproportionately governed by boomers. And because there's a glut of boomers at the top of these institutions, it's, it's much harder for younger generations to begin that process of upward mobility uh, at the same point in the life cycle as the boomers did. And uh, the one last thing I'd mentioned is that they also have benefited from increased longevity. And so, I mean, this is obviously a good thing, but it means that they are sticking around longer than they otherwise would. Yeah, that, that was, in fact, just what I was thinking, uh, that, you know, it seems like maybe they're working a little bit longer, living longer, but also maybe working a little bit longer as well. And, and so that can make it uh, even more difficult that combined with their numbers to kind of open up things for, for younger generations. I mean, I think in politics, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer have been the number one and number two in the Democratic side in the House for, geez, for, for a long, long time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, today, in fact, uh, Dianne Feinstein re- returned um, to the Senate. So, um, and uh, we're right. I mean, we're setting records left and right. And obviously, the presidential candidates, we are uh, destroying previously held records for how old the candidates are going to be if we do get Biden and Trump again in 2024. Now, and, and this is this goes back to an earlier thing, right? Because technically, according to those those generational categories, I think Joe Biden's actually like a silent generation person, right? Yeah, but but honestly, he feels much more like a boomer, and I would expect that he would identify more with that. Which kind of gets to your point about these the. the those areas maybe not being defined as well. And I would think also at the beginning and the end, they can become a lot, uh, a lot more difficult to kind of define, I would say. I mean, Biden was born in 44. So, you know, if we really want to draw a sharp distinction based on that, that's fine. But yeah, I agree with you. Really has more in common with the boomers. So when, I, I guess I'm wondering if, I would assume that the boomers' power has peaked already. I'm hoping maybe that it has, but maybe you could talk about when you see boomer power having peaked and a little bit about how quickly you you see it fading. I know there are a lot of millennials chomping at the bit to get out from under the boomers. I, I feel the same way, though. I've kind of given a pope about that happening for my generational cohort, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think that in a number, in some ways, boomer power has peaked. I think that the number of boomers in the House is decreasing every year, um, and in the Senate 
I believe that it started happening as well. Uh, it's unlikely we'll get more boomer pre presidents, but you never know. I mean, Trump would be one. Um, but I think that in terms of mass political power, we actually have not yet seen the peak of, of boomer influence, um, and also perhaps in mainstream media. And so the key thing here is that when people retire, they have a lot more time to do everything besides working. And this often involves watching a lot of TV or consuming media and also getting more involved in politics as a result, especially today, uh, as more and more of culture is politicized. So um, the age at which, I mean, people are more and more likely to vote as they get older, and that doesn't start to decline again until some point in the mid-80s. So as boomers are retiring, they have more money to spend on, on campaigns, donations, and they have more time to be involved. I actually think that their influence at the voting block will not really peak until the 2030s. Wow. Really <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> all right. Uh, and, and, and so I would guess that all of the things we talked about previously means not only have the boomers been able to punch above their considerable weight, but these things are also keeping them in power longer than we've seen for previous generational cohorts as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's definitely. And, and then I think, well, if, if I look at look forward past the boomers, uh, I see, you know, a media environment, uh, a cultural environment, even that that's pretty fractured, uh, you know, for the last, I don't know, generation or more. And, and then I wonder, well, is the fact that it, it seems to me, at least that the boomers came up in maybe one of the last sort of eras that not just was stable economically, but that sort of was whole in a certain way. Uh, culturally and politically, uh, in the media environment that we don't really see today. And I wonder what that might mean for the influence of, you know, upcoming generational cohorts compared to the, uh, the boomers. Yeah, you have any thoughts on that? So I think that the, well, there's some irony that the current wave of the past decade, there's been some intergenerational sniping. And I, I think it's pretty clear it's because of the boomers are the ones who really wanted to read all of these uh, pop media articles about millennials killing X industry, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. So it really was the boomer audience um, which created millennials as a coherent concept in the cultural imagination, which then people began using to define themselves and became a real sort of phenomenon. So, um, if we look at the percentage of people who are born in the official age range who identify with their generation, the boomers are definitely the highest still, but um, millennials and uh, Gen Z, from what we can see thus far, are certainly also quite high as well, and especially high given that they're all young and younger people tend to be just less, they, they identify less with anything compared to older people. Um, but one thing that really stands out is the difference between um, you know, younger generations are much more racially heterogeneous, um, or diverse. And it looks like among white Gen Z in particular, their rate of identifying as Gen Z is extremely high, higher than the boomers. Um, but non-white Gen Z is much less likely to do so. And I think this has to do with the fact 
there are other identities which are more salient for non-white people. But um, I do sort of see, because of, you know, the media environment is fragmented, but I actually think it's increasingly fragmented along age cohort lines. So people who are watching cable news, cable news is still perhaps the most important single political media location in our, our uh, world today in the U.S. But anyone who watches cable news is going to be like over 40, no one under 45. Whereas different social media platforms and different subsections of the platforms are going to be divided by um, age. And so although there is this fragmentation, younger generations still have a sense of themselves and their peers when they go on. I, I want to turn maybe into some of the policy, at least potential policy differences. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see as some of the really most important, the, the key uh, boomer political, cultural value sensibilities, that sort of thing. And also how you see those as being different from, say, the greatest generation which came before them and uh, the millennials who are kind of just now getting into positions of uh, political influence and authority. Well, I, I mean, so I don't really know that we can divide the, we just don't have good enough polling data to really distinguish what the boomers cared about policy-wise and the greatest generation. And to a large extent, you can't disentangle the generational cohort versus the time period. So, you know, right. different generations are alive at different times. And so the silent generation had, uh, I guess, stronger opinions about post-war reconstruction in the U.S. and after World War II than the boomers did because the boomers were all not yet born. But insofar as we can distinguish, let's say, the boomers versus younger generations, I would say the bigger shift is that younger generations put a huge priority on um, fighting climate change. I think this is the one that really jumps out the most. Um, they don't tend to care as much about some of the economic policy questions, which were pretty important in the 80s and 90s. We think about you know, the kind of heyday of Clinton, the first boomer presidents, and, and the kind of economic issues that dominated at that point, just not very salient to younger generations. Um, and then I would say this is maybe more of an age thing than a cohort thing, but you know, in, the, in, the, in 2023, those two things are difficult to disentangle, which is that older people care about social spending because in the U.S., um, the vast majority of our social spending is on the elderly in the form of Social Security, Medicaid, sorry, Medicare. And there's this kind of quandary where because of the demographic realities, um, at some point, the math behind Social Security and Medicare is not going to add up. There's too many people who are retired, not enough people working. And one of two things will have to happen. Either we're going to have to cut benefits or raise taxes on the people currently working. Given the power of the boomer generation, I just don't see us cutting benefits at all. Instead, we're going to be raising taxes on younger generations. Um, this has been a problem that has been easy to foresee for 30 years. And if they had raised the taxes, the payroll tax for Social Security 30 years ago, the boomers could have solved the problem that they created. 
but because they were powerful when they were young, they didn't, they didn't raise the taxes. And because they're powerful when they're old, they're not going to cut the benefits. And so other generations are going to have to. Do yeah, you know, I, when I talk to my students, I almost get a sense of, of resignation uh, about that. Not even anger anymore when, when I ask them, you know, do you, do you expect Social Security to be around when you're at retirement age? And strong majorities, no, no, it's not, it's not going to happen. It just, it's so, I mean, I get the sense that, that millennials and Gen Z, now that I'm sitting in my classrooms, are, are, are maybe less overall optimistic, far more cynical and pessimistic than, say, boomers were. Did, did you have a, do you have a sense of that at all? Yes. I mean, again, it's sort of hard to disintangle the sure. overall cultural mood. So, like, if you just look at the, you know, just look at the Q data on this, the U.S. as a whole is less optimistic than a white. And so... I do think that your experience of the world when you're young tends to color how you think about how the world works. And so the boomers were definitely raised in a period of unprecedented optimism. And I think that has stuck with them, whereas the overall mood now is considerably um, more pessimistic. And I could see that really coloring younger generations' expectations. Yeah, because I really feel like when you take a look at, at American history, that 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 boomer age was really sort of an outlier in terms of American power and prestige. I can't, I can, sometimes I think about connections between that and, and Donald Trump and the, and the MAGA folks thinking about, well, yes, this is, this is how things were when we were coming up and this is how things are just naturally supposed to be. Yet it's really kind of in the broader scope of history, a very different thing. And for those of us who are maybe raised in more of an era of uh, not, maybe more multipolarity or American decline, that's, I think we see the world in a very different way and America's place in it. No, I think that's right. That's actually sort of one of the things that got me thinking on this topic a few years ago. Is that, hmm, the reality that the boomers have experienced in the past 20 years is one of decline. They went from one of the golden ages, perhaps in the history of the world, to our current experience. And so you see how they have some sense that their expectations have been dashed, and, and you, you understand why the Trumpian narrative kind of connects. And I think that on a lot of dimensions, and this happens on both the left and the right, I think the idea of the possibility of um, being able to afford college and, and then buy a house on a factory worker's income in the 50s, 60s, or whatever. Uh, it's like that was something that was taken from us by greedy neoliberal policies destroying the working class. But on both dimensions, we just have to recognize that this was a golden age um, and that we can't use that as our baseline for what is uh, possible or what we expect. It doesn't mean we should not try to get better, but um, in, in terms of like trying to point to specific causes of our decline, I would say it's more of a reversion to the mean than any one specific. I certainly agree, but I think it's one thing to be able to understand that intellectually, but I think especially your when growing up, your, your lived, your felt experience, that, that strikes a real emotional chord, and that's the sort of thing I see, for instance, in, in the, the Trump rallies and that sort of thing, and that's why I think it can be such a powerful sort of thing for that, for that cohort. I agree 100%. It's um, just not, you know, no amount of rational, uh, whatever reading numbers and statistics can transcend that, that lived experience. Do you feel that when, when we turn to media, I mean, most of the 
most of the st students, younger folks that I come into contact with, as you point out, it's not like they're watching cable news or, or anything like that. It's it's TikTok and, and, and various other social media platforms. And so I'm wondering the extent to which you feel like, given the popularity and importance of those platforms, the extent to which boomers are still able to kind of control the political narrative from those legacy platforms like, you know, like cable news and or just, you know, old fashioned, even pre cable news. Is that is that less of a thing than it used to be because of the fact that most people, like you said, under the age of 45 or so don't just ignore those platforms? Well, I, I think um, it's not like if more millennials were watching cable news, it would really change what was being put on. I don't think. Um, I. I I sort of see this as a there's like just an emerging alternative reality where when the what I call it boomer realism this this media political environment boomers grew up in is still persisting um, and so because of that it is it kind of masks the amount of changes that have actually happened and so when the, the you know, boomer Realism and the boomer power of the cultural domain starts to decline. Um, it might crack up relatively quickly, and then there will be a huge diversity of other perspectives, which are, are all kind of ready to jump in and um, you know, provide a more pluralistic understanding of how uh, things are going. Do you do you, uh, you mentioned already? You mentioned climate change as a a big issue. For uh, uh, for millennials and I would assume uh, Gen Z as well, that may be the the single biggest thing I would guess. Do you, do you notice any other when you when you kind of take a look at those groups and compare them to the Boomers? Do you see any areas, other areas where uh, voters from those court or potential voters from those courts say, "Yeah, this is really important," or "I don't really care about this," and that's a big difference from Boomer sensibilities on, on those issues? Um, I mean. Here, I do think we kind of run into the issues of these groups are too large and, and heterogeneous um, to really define a kind of character or sensibility to them. So, I, you know, there are stereotypes. They're probably not entirely false, but I don't really think there's that much leverage to be gained here. I wonder if in looking at with the research you've done, when you look to the future, based on these kind of generational cohorts. Uh, did, like right now, for instance, younger people, it seems to me most of the data I've seen, you know more about this than I do, uh, are fairly liberal. There's even a rise in, in socialism, or at least uh, people who are receptive to it, democratic socialism. But I wonder if that's the sort of thing that's going to stick with that cohort as it ages, or if that's not so much a cohort-related thing, but an age-related thing, because there's this right this this old idea that over time people tend to become more supportive of the status quo, more conservative in that. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So this is one of the key questions people always have: the idea of uh, whatever the, the quote: if someone is not a Democrat when they're 20, they have no heart. If they're not a Republican when yeah. they're 40, they have no brain. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, there's limited evidence that people become more conservative as they age. On the one hand, the bigger problem, I think, is that these terms don't really have any meaning. I think the way you phrased it actually 
is is pretty perceptive, right? People definitely become more supportive of the status quo as they almost definitionally. But how that maps on to, um, let's say, a two-party system where one of the parties is the conservative party, the other one's the liberal party, that's much less obvious. So um, in terms of partisan identification with Republicans, right? Partisan identification does not tend to change very much throughout the life cycle. So whichever party you become affiliated with when you're young, you tend to continue to be affiliated with them as you age. On the other hand, as the issue base continues to change, it's kind of definitional that younger people are going to be supportive of the new issue. So, you know, when I when I hear uh, younger people talking about boomers, it's with a, a sense of disdain, right? The whole OK Boomer sort of thing, that there are these uh, out of touch old folks who I, I think they see them as having failed the country in a lot of really important ways. You know, these this self-important, self-involved group that had it all handed to them and they screwed up the country. I, maybe I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration, but do you, do you feel like based on the data you've seen that that's that's a fairly uh, fair representation, at least of how millennials and, and Gen Z see the boomers? I, I think that's right. I would say, you know, putting this back in context, we were just discussing the fact that uh, everyone has their own narrative for why the U.S. is not as good as it was before. And younger generations blaming the older generations for it also is just another perspective on that um, reversion to me. The other thing I would say is that there is definitely growing generational animosity. Here, I mean, I think the evidence is somewhat preliminary, but in the survey I ran, the rate of boomers who said that they would be less likely to vote for a politician who prioritized younger generations' issues was higher than the rate of younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, who said they would be less likely to vote for a politician prioritizing older generations' issues. So, insofar as there is intergenerational resentment, I do think it goes in both directions. And in in the course of doing your research for the book, I, I'm curious, is there, I, when, whenever someone writes a book, I think you don't come into it as a blank slate, right? You have certain preconceptions, whether a theoretical framework or something like that. And But also, when I talk to people who've put a lot into a project, it's, invariably they discover things that surprise them or change their perspective in some way. And, and I'm wondering what jumped out to you in the time you spent researching and, and writing this book? Was there anything that, that surprised you or changed your mind about something or kind of big, I guess, takeaways, that sort of thing? I would say the kind of prominence of the disparity in the number of terms that Boomers have, have served in the House and the Senate was, you know, I was expecting to see this as a big difference, but it was much bigger than I thought. And so this really, it really represents a, a multiplicative effect of all of these different advantages. Um, so population size, economic power, voting power, and institutional advancement. Um, and this is also distinctive cross-sectionally. So if we look at the world today, the U.S. has the second oldest legislature in the world. 
right after Cambodia, and I'm not sure what that's about. But right third after the U.S. is the U.K. And I think this is pretty clearly a result of the electoral institutions in these countries. So we have a, you know, we have a majoritarian <clears throat> single-member district, and they have a majoritarian electoral system as well. And, and so this tends to prioritize individual candidates versus party control. So most of the other democracies have a more parliamentary system where parties are given more control. And so it is, it is precisely the demographic power. And, you know, a lot of other countries had something like a baby boom, but it is filtered through the specific electoral institutions in the U.S. and some extent the U.K., which produces this gigantic. Uh, that, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So one final question for you. Are, are, how, are you how optimistic? Are you that the millennials and Gen Z, and I know that kind of the, the leading edge of Zen, Gen Z right now, they're in their early to mid 20s, so just becoming maybe politically active. Uh, do you feel optimistic that these generations, as they displace the boomers, can somehow help to get a handle on some of the issues that it seems like they feel like the boomers weren't able to figure out? Or is this just kind of a standard, you know, well, everyone just brain blames the previous generation for screwing things up and then they go ahead and screw things up in new and different ways. Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to say that like boomers are bad and other generations are good. Um, I think that <clears throat> every generation is pursuing their own interests. The boomers for a lot of uh, unrelated reasons, many of which were not their faults, had a lot of power. So they were more successful at achieving their own interests. And that does mean that there is a kind of a, uh, distortion in who is represented in the American politics today, though in addition to the well-discussed, still important distortions about race and gender, I do think this generational perspective is very, very striking. And so I think that the optimistic case is, well, at present, each younger generation is voting at lower rates. Then older generations are participating at lower rates. And I think that the optimistic case is that there could be a virtuous cycle where as more millennials in particular are elected to Congress, they're more visible on the national stage. This gives uh, younger people something they can connect with in electoral politics today. You know, it's just other than like fear of what might happen, it's not really an optimistic case for younger people choosing between the 78-year-old and the 82-year-old white guy for president. So um, there, there just is not a lot of energy there, except for like the energy of we need to fix climate change so we don't all die or uh, pass gun reform so we don't all get killed in school. Uh, but as a kind of like optimistic case of what we could possibly achieve together, there really isn't that sense for um, younger generations. And I do think it is, you know, the optimistic case is that as there are more um, millennial and Gen Z politicians who are able to articulate an alternative vision for what we could achieve, um, that could then draw in more of these voters, and then they will have more cloud, more electoral success, and then more mass success as well. So that's the kind of... Well, I always believe in closing an uh, optimistic note, so that's what we will do. Kevin Munger, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. This has been great.
We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.